Welcome to the Heart of Business podcast. I'm your host, Mo Fatalbab, and today our guest is Christina Harbridge. I have been hearing about Christina for probably a couple of decades now, and we're just finally getting a chance to meet, and she has quite an amazing story. I'm so excited to talk to you, Christina. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much, and thank you for everything that you're doing in the world. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I can't wait to get into it. So, you know what? Let's start with the most fun thing I've heard about you, uh, a NASA test subject. Tell us a bit about that and what drew you to it in the first place. So I had a call center where, you know, more than three quarters of the call incoming calls were people yelling and screaming. And mm. we were doing a lot of um, training and development. And I noticed that my team would receive training. They would rate it a 10 and then the behavior wouldn't change. And so I started really nerding out. Um, I had co-wrote some of the software we were using. So I programmed all these action codes so that I could start looking more granular about human behavior. Why were some of the people getting the incoming calls able to facilitate a conversation rather than a confrontation? And why were some of us getting really shaken and not able to do what we were being taught in the training class? And so once I started nerding out on it, I got these um, heart math machines and biofeedback machines, and my team would let me hook them up to these things. I just started really realizing, I started working with neurobiologists and physiologists. I was like, where are the smartest people on the planet when it comes to the body? And it was NASA. And so a friend of mine, um, I had helped uh, get funding asked if he could do anything for me. And I said, I want to go to space. I want to go to NASA. And he introduced me to how to apply to be a test subject in one of their experiments. And I got on like the, the list of a thousand because there's so many people who apply. And I was just really fortunate to get in. And it was, uh, I, I don't even, I'm not a good enough um, communicator to express how game changing it was. Mm. Um, being around people who fully understand physiology in a way that the rest of us just don't, that our, our body is driving our behavior more than anything else. Our body is driving our behavior more than anything else. So mm-hmm. I'm reading into the story to, to kind of understand that the, the resilience training is essentially what's happening. So by pushing ourselves, <laughs> no, no, just the opposite. This is what blew my mind. So the, the physician in my program, you have to do all these tests. So I show up totally dressed inappropriately, wearing heels and like, you know, had done my hair up and my makeup. And she's like, oh, hell no. Like you're about <laughs> to, we're going to test your body. Put They put you in these um, suits that test all this physiology. And one of the first tests is you have to go in a rotating chair. Um, her voice is in your ears and Um, telling you to put your head forward, put your head back, put your head forward, all this stuff. So I have seven older brothers, Mo. I am so resilient. Like there's nothing you can do to me. I can take anything. Uh And her, she said to me, when you've had enough physiologically, you need to tap out. You need to say you can't handle anymore. And, you know, if you're a little sister that you do not tap out, it gets worse. (laughs) You never tap out. It gets worse. So my little, you know, brain heard, resilient, be resilient. I woke up on the floor with her looking at me. Mm -hmm. I had gone to the point of passing out. I got kicked out 
And her words to me, I will never forget. She looked at me and she she said, Harbridge, your resilience is a problem. And I had been trained my whole life that resilience is what we're supposed to be in Mm. a lot of ways. It's a problem. It is why our organizations are struggling. I want to get back to that in a second. And I want to make a link to how this helped with your call center business. Because that is really cool. Uh, But I want to just connect with you and tell you that, uh, you know, I used to run marathons and part of the training is really just the programming of your mind to never quit. And in fact, I do know, and I remember the moment when I hurt my knees and it's taken me years. So I get this notion of, okay, maybe sometimes our mind is a little bit too strong for our body. Yeah. 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 So, so tell me more about, about how that translated for you at your call center. So it just helped me and and just nerd out. So our conference room was full of all these post-it notes and linkages where I started hiring physiologists, biologists, all these people that really understood the body. It got me realizing that the reason training wasn't working is because we were teaching skills, ability, and emotional literacy, but we weren't teaching people what our physiology does when we're hijacked by something. And so I create, I started creating content because some of my team pressure was clarifying for them. They got clearer when they were yelled at the rest of us humans, like me, I would have a reaction to it. And I kept being told it was an emotional reaction. It's not, it's a physical reaction first. And we keep getting training about emotional literacy, kind of ignoring the fulcrum, the thing that's really driving us, which is our body. So, and so it changed. It. I just developed a bunch of training um, yes. and it was a game changer for um, our ability to handle conflict. So I got a nasty customer on the line. Yeah. And they are screaming at me and I'm feeling something probably in the pit of my stomach and maybe my heart's beating faster. Yeah. And maybe I'm sweating a little bit. Does that sound yeah. about right? Um, for some people, Yeah. Um, And what would you, how would you label heart racing and sweating? How do you label that? Anxiety, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's the problem. Our Western society has labeled the feature of our body. Sweating and heart racing is a feature, not a bug. Mm -hmm. It is our label that it's anxiety that causes us to do stuff that messes with our outcome. Uh-huh. If you are sweating, it is a sign your body is working correctly. That is for us, not to us. Ooh. But the moment we label it as anxiety, we are no longer in the in an outcome orientation. We're in a soothing mechanism now. I have to soothe my anxiety. Yeah. And yeah. so last thing I'll say, I could totally nerd out on this, is a dip in our physiology isn't bad. How we soothe it is what messes with outcomes. And I can give you an example if you if you want. Yes, please. I'm All loving right. this conversation. So here's how we soothe it, soothe it, Mo. We are yeah. taught, every trainer would say, get calmer and slower when you're getting yelled at. Um, and that made rational sense. Like when you listen to it, it's like, yeah, you calm them down. But in reality, I started watching, nobody gets calmer when somebody is calmer. No one gets calmer. They escalate because it makes it feel like, Mo, you don't understand how upset I am. So let me get louder. So I taught my team, instead of soothing our discomfort by getting calmer, 
match or exceed their concern for the problem. Escalate your voice. Get, oh no, what's going on? What's oh happening? Oh my God, oh, that's no. horrible. Like, I can't escalate. believe this is happening. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we um, recorded our calls when we had permission to do so. We recorded the person. Um, I, The people who were in physiological jackets, we would map out and compare. So I really nerded out. This is like not... Uh, this wasn't just looking at it. We really would then review more than 75% of the time, more than that. It was probably 90%, but I don't have the numbers in front of me and I don't want to lie about it. More than three quarters of the time, that person would ratchet down because they felt hurt because they were um, getting empathy or matching of concern. So they had no reason to stay hostile. But so many of us are trained with child rearing to act like we're not upset with our kids or with our employees. And then that person keeps being upset. I love it. I love it. I love it. Brilliant. And how did that affect the results? What measurable results did you have? Um, so we, because I had helped write the software we kept metrics on everything. So I could sit here and nerd out forever on all the ways it impacted the metrics. But the thing that I was, we had started this company with the idea that we could turn a debt collection call into something positive. We could help people send them get well cards, help them find jobs. So the whole basis of the business was let's change this hard conversation into humanity and something beautiful we expected to collect less by doing it this way. That was my expectation, but that companies would want to use us because the last person their customer talks to is positive. We ended up collecting three times more. Three so times average, more. Amazing. The industry average was 9.9%. We were 32.2, I think, if I remember right. So we were three times more and we got invited to weddings. And people brought in their kid to bring to meet their bill collector. So it the met it was unbelievable and a surprise how people have a basic need to feel understood. And we were filling that. And therefore they would pay us more often if they owed it. So we often told people not to pay it if they didn't know it. So we had a whole different way. We we weren't transactional. We were very much about helping that person thrive, you know, mm -hmm. in this situation. Sometimes they didn't know it, but if they did owe it, they would pay us before anything else. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. I love it. So yeah. back to just close out the NASA piece. So yeah. were you hoping to go into space and, and uh, I was. you were, and how close did you get? I was. And so I got, I was only, you know, I was in a study. So the way that it works is there's paid test subjects. I was not a paid test subject. I was a volunteer begging to be in. And I got picked to be in another program that was going to go suborbital and then the funding got cut. And so, and then I got breast cancer. So I'm not, I'm not doing it now because um, I've had so many breast surgeries, but uh, it is a, uh, a, uh, I highly recommend everyone listening apply to be a, apply to be a volunteer. It is the most brilliant humans that spend the the physicians I work with spend more than eighty percent of their time teaching people how to be cognitively clear when your body is freaking out. It is best training I've ever had. Well, thank you for. Uh your openness and vulnerability. And so, you know, to just uh, share that you had cancer is, oh, yeah. is very, um, 
gosh, I appreciate it. I really appreciate it. Not everybody's comfortable talking about that stuff. I'm curious, were you always this open or is this a byproduct of some of your work or, or, or your forum experience at EO perhaps? Um, so one thing I will say is everyone listening to this, including you, get your bits checked. So I have to say that yeah. because I'm good because it was early. So I just want to say to everyone listening, get your bits checked. That is the most important thing we can do with cancer. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, it's very important. I'm starting to choke up because it saved my life and I'm hey, good. I lost um, my grandmother to cancer. I mean, this is no joke. So I am so sorry. What was yeah. your grandma's? What was her name? What did you call her? Uh, well, <laughs> I called her Nani. Nani. Uh, oh, yeah. Nani will be with me tonight when I think oh, about all of our ancestors. I'm you. so grateful you brought her with us today. Thank you. Thank you for yeah. being Yeah. Yeah, it really is uh, um, something many of us forget to do because we're busy mm. and we have to get our bits checked. And I'm just so grateful that I did. And I'm my heart goes with you, with Nani, with your grandma. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So the, have I always been this transparent? That is, no one has ever asked me that before, because I am very transparent. You know, I think, no. I think in my early 20s, I tried really hard to be perfect. Mm. So teens... Teens and twenties, I think my, 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 I was raised by a father who was counterculture, like civil rights worker, everything society was telling me, he told me the opposite. And he caught me reading a 17 magazine. I don't know if you know what that is. I remember Mo. those. Sure. Not that I remember, but I remember seeing them. On the news. I was laying by a pool. We lived in an apartment complex. He caught me reading a 17 magazine when I was maybe 15 or 16. And he was like, no, no. From then on, he had me, he, Fannie Lou Hamer, Frida Kahlo, like he powerful, strong women that had nothing to do with their body or their looks. He had me read about them and talk about them. And I think it took about five, four to five years for me to realize that so much of society was telling me to be perfect and different than who I am. Mm. And this is not just gender. And I think it made me start pushing against that and being like, no, I, I think the real person is so much more interesting than anything fabricated. And so it started in my early twenties, just being almost um, belligerently transparent. <laughs> like just, that. if I'm in a room full of people, you know, wooden, I'm just going to, talk about my period or, you know, be, talk about something real. And I really honor and my father, who's no longer with me, that he started that um, when I was 15, because he saw me thinking about my body mm. instead of my brain or my power or what I could do. Well, he sounds like a brilliant man. He was. I miss him. Mm. And what was his name? Robert Harold Everett Christopher Harbridge. Wow. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, let's have a moment of silence for him. Thank you. And so where did you grow up? So I grew up in Doraville, Georgia, is where mm. I started. Uh, and a Mexican mom, New York father, Southern. 
I, I was a speech, I had a speech impediment, I think because of all the accents, I didn't know how to talk. Uh-huh. So I was a special ed student in Georgia. And then I moved at nine or 10, we moved to California. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I was raised in Sacramento until I moved to the Bay Area in San Francisco. Very nice. And when was your first entrepreneurial venture? What was it? Uh, uh, 10 years old, I was babysitting. So Uh doing a lot of babysitting. And I'm a people pleaser. That is like my thing. And so when I would babysit, I would clean up their house while the kid was sleeping. And so everyone wanted me to babysit. So I would always have everyone always wanted me. So I had this idea that I was going to, I started like calling my friends and having them babysit if I couldn't. So the person would call me and say, I can't, but let me call my friend for you. So I became like a babysitting exchange. (laughs) It's so funny. And so then one of the dads said, you need to like get paid for that. Like, you know, something small, have the, the parents pay you something for the work you're doing for them for free. And I was like, oh, okay. So that's what I did. So I started training my friends the, here's the four things you do when you babysit that'll give you a big tip because you're helping the parent. And then the, I can't even remember. It was such a small amount that the parents would pay me and they would just call me. And I was like the exchange person. I love that. That's funny. going over and above, right? That's customer service. Yeah. Beautiful. yeah. I totally forgot about that for years. It wasn't until recently. I'm like, oh yeah, that was my first company. Mm. And so that was 10 years old, first company, yep. next company. How old were you for that one? So I um, was probably in my early 20s. I think I was like 21, maybe um, with a partnership, partner with somebody mm-hmm. who to start. I was working at a debt collection agency as an office person because my dad had Parkinson's and I had to figure out how to pay for him and still go to college. And um I, a friend of mine wanted to start their own. And so I partnered with them and I was in my early twenties. Um, and then our partnership broke up and I ended up starting my own after that in my early twenties. Um, and that was Bridgeport, this company that I just told you about. Beautiful. So what's next now that I know you, and now that I've had this wonderful time to get to know you a little bit better, I, I just have a feeling there's something big around the corner for you. Can you give us a little hint what it might be? You know, it's so funny. I was just writing about that this morning that um, so a couple years ago, so Al, I started a behavioral company after I sold my call center. So many people were hiring me to, you know, to um, help with this behavioral learning. And so we did system design. So behavioral system design inside companies. We did learning, leadership learning, and then I helped train people to win office. And so public speaking, all that stuff. So I had this whole thing. So I started this company, Allegory, doing that, um, having facilitators all over the world. And I sold that, the intellectual property, and a big part of that two years ago. And so now I've just an answer to, long-winded answer to your question, my child goes to college in September. Mm. So I've been really committed to staying home. So I get asked to speak a lot and I turn down 90% of them because I want to be home. And Mo, now I'm in this like delicious, like what? I don't know. 
I, you know, I'm, I have a book coming out soon on this afferent stuff that I the physiology stuff that I just talked to you about, Mm. but I'm in this, I would love ideas because I'm just like, I don't know. I don't know. It's like so much possibility. I do love teaching public speaking because so many presenters right now are way too transactional and wooden. They're They're being trained to be fake and perfect and instead of their mad magical self. And so I might, <laughs> I don't know, I might do that. I don't know. I don't know. Mad I magical am. self. I love okay. that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm figuring that out. I'm, I've made a commitment not to plan until he leaves for college. Cause I don't, I want to sit here and all the snot bubbling of missing my roommate. I don't want to be worth working on something new while he's still here. So I'm going to drop him off at college and then be like, Hi, I don't know what to do. Uh, Well, I so admire that. I, you know, I don't know about you, but everybody I know is on the constant treadmill and always working harder and running faster and running longer. And, and, uh, you know, I probably am the same. So to hear you've made this space and to see you oozing with joy as you are to spend this time with your son is really uh, inspiring. So thank you for that. And it is, there's a lot of tears, a lot of crying that comes with, and, you know, happy tears, sentimental tears, but also just having 19 years of a project with a little (laughs) being and then have, you know, see ya, have fun. You know, it's, it's really a sentimental, beautiful time. And I do, and I hope this is okay to say for your listeners, you know, I do think being an entrepreneur, part of it for me, just for me, I'm not saying this is true for everyone. It had me hustle for my worthiness. Mm. And a couple years ago, I realized that there was an, a part of all of my success and awards and was me wanting to feel worthy. And so getting off that treadmill has just been so the work that I'm doing now, the gigs that I do now are so much more rich because I'm not thinking about me. I'm thinking of, or my employees or anything else. I'm thinking about this individual and how do we accelerate them in their natural authentic being. It's really, it's been magical kind of getting off that hustle. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, I mean, you're you're speaking my language. Uh, you know, you said people pleasing, uh, check. You said uh, overachieving, I think is the word you used for check. <laughs> I got it. I got it. Yes, it's an affliction. But uh, thankfully, <laughs> thankfully, uh, you know, I love what I do. But still, you're yeah. absolutely right. The, 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 um, that moment to breathe is really important. Something else you brought up uh, just before we say goodbye. You said we... You cry a lot, you tears. And, um, you know, I'm in the business of of really uh, appreciating that. And, and in fact, I, I say to other facilitators, we're privileged to be able to have tears yeah. and to have that yeah. be actually a good thing. Yeah. Um, with your work in physiology, what else can you tell us about tears and what they mean for you and what they do for you? Yeah. So there's the whole biochemical thing that a tear does for our body, which is very healthy. Uh, So here's what I'll say. Most of us were raised to just get over it. Yeah. That was a gift that our parents or foster parents or, 
you know, aunties, grandma, whoever raised us, they were, they thought they had been duped into thinking resilience is everything. So I have to raise this kid to just get over it. Oh, you're having a feeling? Nobody feels like having, get over it. Go to your room. It was a gift that is not a gift because true resilience, true resilience means we can sit still in Mm. all feelings without doing any antics, without sending our kid to the room. We can sit with our kid when they're having a meltdown and say, and think to ourselves, I want to be the person my child runs to when the world gets too big. I am not sending them to their room and I'm not going to try to fix it for them. I'm going to let them move through it because resilience is on the other end of tears. So whenever companies hire me to say, I want you to do resilience training, I'm doing, I'm almost doing the opposite because resilience makes us tolerate stuff we could fix. A lot of organizations struggle because everyone's tolerating instead of really sitting down in the feelings, which is sometimes tears. Like after after the feeling, our biochemistry shifts, we get clear and we make better decisions. Resilience makes us tolerate stuff that we can fix. That is pure genius, my friend. I love yeah. it. I love it. I love it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Christina, for sharing your wisdom with us. It's been an honor and a privilege having this conversation with you. And I look forward to many more. You're just absolutely a bundle of of wisdom and joy. What a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yay. Absolutely. Thank you for everything you're doing. Thank you. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye.